my name is Will DeGravio, and you are listening to the Video Essay Podcast, a show featuring conversations with leading critics, scholars, filmmakers, and other practitioners of the videographic essay. It's been a while, I think about a month uh, since our last episode was released. Um, As many of you know, if you follow me on Twitter or just follow the podcast, I recently moved to the United Kingdom to begin graduate school, so taken that time to pack up my life and then fly over and overcome jet lag and start classes and things like that. So that is the reason for the delay. Thank you so much for for your patience. And I'm very thrilled to be resuming the podcast and, and getting back to hopefully the every other week schedule that we've been on. Of course, um, we'll see how graduate school uh, progresses and it may get more intense and there may be there may be not that every other week pattern and it may come out on different days um, but I'll do my very best to to keep everyone updated on that now the first thing I want to say for this episode is that we will will not be announcing the homework for the next episode on this podcast. Uh, the reason for that is there was uh, some conflicts, and the guests that we had originally lined up, uh, they uh, are actually unable to be our next guest. So, but so you know, which is totally fine. I, I figured that given the nature of the show and assigning homework, that that would happen eventually. So no worries at all. But this is a good opportunity for me to remind you that you should definitely be following us on Twitter at Video Essay Pod or liking us on Facebook, the Video Essay Podcast, or just following our website, the Video Essay because uh, within the next few days, uh, we will announce a new guest and the homework will be posted there. It's also just good because, you know, as the show goes on and I get more busy with graduate school, that will be the source of finding out when the next episode will be released if it's not every other Thursday like it has been in the past. My guest on today's show is, of course, Adrian Martin, who is a legendary and prolific film critic. I mean, Adrian is currently working on a project curating all of his film reviews written over the decades on his own website, and we will link to that on our website. But he is also a prolific video essayist, and his video essays are made in partnership with Christina Alvarez Lopez. Now, I just want to preface our conversation by saying that Adrian and Christina decided that Adrian would be their sole representative on the show to talk about their work. Um, and so that's just important context for the conversation that Adrian and I, will, and I are going to have um, in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we get to our conversation with Adrian, I just want to talk quickly about a fantastic event that I attended at Birkbeck in London. Uh, now, this was an event that was uh, plugged on past episodes of the show. It was put together by, of course, the one and only Catherine Grant, who was our first guest on the podcast. And it featured some really fantastic presentations by four video essayists, including Katie. Um, they were Kathleen Locke, uh, Patrick Keating, and uh, Chiara Grizafi. And their work was just so stunning. It was so great to see it projected up onto the big screen. And I was lucky enough to be able to live tweet basically the entire event. Now, not all of the videos that were screened were on Vimeo, um, but the ones that were, I included links in my tweets. And if they're not yet on on Vimeo, um, you should definitely be on the lookout for them. So I will link to that Twitter thread on our website, or again, you can find it at Video Essay Pod on Twitter. That's all I have for you today. Now, please enjoy our conversation with Adrian Martin. And now we come to the interview portion of the show where I'm sitting down here with Adrian Martin. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing fine. My, my first question, 
is for decades, you've been a prolific film critic as a writer and as operating primarily as a freelance film critic, if I'm correct, there are basically only so many hours in the day, right, for, for you to operate. And so at some point, you made the judgment that you would take time away from your written criticism to focus on videographic criticism. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what got you interested in making videographic criticism. Mm. Well, I think in my case, you know, I was like very early on in my early 20s, I, I had a lot of sort of dreams, like fantasies in a way, because I didn't have all the technology, but I did think of, of trying to combine writing with other things, maybe, maybe graphic design, um, maybe thinking about sort of like live performance with slides or, or clips. But, you know, I'm talking about the 1980s here where it wasn't so easy to sort of get this stuff together. You know, you either had to know people who really were on top of all this technology uh, or you tried to do a very, very lo-fi version of it, which, which I did a little bit when I was in my 20s with just with slides and, and tape music on a tape recorder and, and reading a text and stuff like that. So, so you know, now we sort of cut forward to, in my case, basically when I, I get together with my partner, Christina Alvarez-Lopez, and, uh, and that's at the end of 2011. And she's already been involved with, with making audiovisual essays and she's already, you know, exploring the technology and she knows how to do this stuff. And, uh, and so it was through her really that I suddenly found a way to return to my initial dreams of, of trying to do a, a more multimedia form of film criticism. Another, I'd, and, and then we're going to jump back to your partnership with Christina Alvarez Lopez because I want to get into the collaborative process. But I want to talk, just kind of get into your background a little bit before we before we jump to the partnership. And that is that you also have a lot of experience doing DVD Blu-ray commentaries for films. You're, you did the one for one of my favorite films, Viva Savi, on the Criterion Collection, and, and so those also I think could be arguably precursors to video essays, or there are elements of. DVD commentaries that are definitely borrowed in videographic work. And so I'm wondering, when did you start doing those types of commentaries and how has doing that influenced your work as, as a video essayist? Uh, I started doing um, audio commentaries for DVD and later Blu-ray in 2006. And I started with an Australian company. I was living in Australia at the time. And there was an Australian company, Madman, and they put out a special um, line of, of DVDs called the Director's Suite. And that's where basically they put all their European art film classics, Godard, Mizuguchi, Buñuel, all of that stuff. And so I was one of the people that they used. They used, in fact, a whole small army of people to, to do commentaries. And they had a good vision as a company about the importance of this as a way of sort of adding value to, to films and, and creating a new kind of market for, for DVD particularly amongst people who were cinephiles or aspiring cinephiles or people just getting into to movies of this kind and so on. So I, 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 did, I did around 35 DVDs with that company uh, until 2010. And then there was actually a five-year gap and, uh, and some of those were reused by other companies such as Criterion and uh, Masters of Cinema in UK some of those ones I'd already done. And, uh, and then finally it all sort of kicked up for me just, just four years ago, thanks to the British Film Institute uh, and then a series of other companies, including uh, Arrow and Indicator, uh, mainly in, uh, in the United Kingdom. 
uh, but a few other jobs here and there too. So, and and that's that's once again I've 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 done a fairly prolific work, and this time being able to get a bit beyond the the classic art house cinema thing to also do Hollywood classics, uh, you know, film noirs, romantic comedy, you know, the, getting a bit closer to what is actually the full range of of my of my interest in cinema. Now, now to come to your question more about what is the relation between that and doing audiovisual essays, uh, in in some ways, doing uh, audio commentaries, commentaries for me was a continuation of something before that, and that was radio. Uh, and I did I did radio a radio film review, fifteen minutes scripted for three years between 1995 and 1997. That was an incredibly important experience for me and also taught me a lot because I had a, a wonderful producer and, uh, and she taught me how to speak, how to write for the ear, right, how to write so that when I read it, people hear it. And, and that's totally different to, to the conventions of, of written on the page language. So it taught me a, a whole other way of speaking, which in fact was more lyrical, more more poetic, more evocative. Because it really, I was trying to evoke these films on the radio, you know, for for people who might see them, people who may never see them. Uh, you know, I, I, w- I would get letters from people in the in the distant sort of country rural areas of Australia saying saying, "Oh, it's great to listen to you. I mean, we'll never see any of these films, but." We feel like we've seen them through listening to you. It's one of the best compliments I ever got, you know. And uh, so I, I got a sense there of, of, of what one kind of criticism can be, which is evocative and, and lyrical and so on. And, and also for me it was a way of what I'm calling sort of performative film criticism, like to perform it, to read it. This was part of the early dream I had when I was in my early 20s, how to make it a more almost a theatrical thing to be to be involved in film criticism, to somehow perform it, present it uh, in a way that the, the, the seeing, the hearing excites people. So definitely I've taken some aspects of that into the work I do with Christina on, on audiovisual essays. In audiovisual essays, though, I think, see, it's no longer me, you know, for instance, speaking for 90 minutes out straight on, on, the, on a DVD, which I used to do for Mad Men. They would turn on the microphone and I would speak for 90 minutes, two hours without a break while the film was playing, right? So it's a completely different thing. It's a little bit more like radio in that it's, you know, there are scripted phrases. We, we record them. This is for the audiovisual essays. But then we play with the placement, the editing. Everything's much more condensed in an audiovisual essay, and we don't even really think of it as a, as a flowing text from the first word to the last. We think of it as a bunch of phrases, of spoken phrases that we we edit, re-edit, we throw some out, we re-record some. I mean, I'm in one room, Christina's in another. Christine will say, go back and re-record that paragraph or that sentence or let's redo that. So I'll go into the other room and re-record it and come back. And, you know, so, so that's part of how, how we're doing that in, in real time, as it were, is, is constantly redoing these little fragments of, of voice. But I think, you know, if I have any skill as, as, a, as a performer, as an orator, a lot of it has to do with uh, the radio experience I had. That makes a lot of sense. I think you gave us a perfect segue to talking about more in more detail your collaboration with Christina. And, and so I'm wondering, what was you, you mentioned that she was the one who introduced you to this type of work. And so was your first video essay 
I assume a collaboration as well b- between the two of you. Um, and could you talk a little bit about kind of how that essay came came into being? I, I would just be interested to hear the backstory. Mm. Well, the you know love has a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, like to, to to fall in love with Christina, to you know come to Spain, like to leave Australia, to come to Spain, to to live with her, and we spent two years in Germany, sort of in the meantime. And you know, we have a very close rapport, and a lot of that involves that that you know, whenever we can, we try to do collaborations. That could be a, a collaborative written text, uh, it could be a, a lecture, a sort of live performance. Um, uh, and particularly it's the audiovisual essays. Uh, and the very first things we did were, were sort of tentative attempts where it was more like I had to give a talk in Barcelona and so she and I and another friend of ours, Covadonga La Era, we, we kind of did up compilations of clips that would sort of punctuate this, this speech I was giving at a conference. So this is not yet an audiovisual essay. It's, it's still more like a you know, a traditional classroom lecture, but edited up a little bit better. And, uh, uh, but from there, I started to get this idea. I actually, what, what prompted it was that, and this is now we're talking about the start of 2013. And, uh, and I, I had for a long time, this dream in my mind that I wanted to do this like super theatrical spectacular uh, of film criticism. And I had this particular topic in my mind, which was the cinema of real estate. So films about people buying and selling apartments and homes and and all the strange encounters that go on and all the dramas and the comedies of of real estate, which is everything from, you know, Eric Romare films to Simon Liang's films. I mean, it, it covers an incredible span of cinema once you start getting into the cinema of real estate. And um, so I had this, and I had all these quotations from different people. I had all these clips in my head, and I, and I had different, as it were, families of clips. And I sort of knew they were all going to come together somehow, poetically. I had this like grand dream, and in my mind, this was going to be like a three-hour performance, right? And uh, and so I started talking about it with Christina, and, and I think maybe that's where we started was well, let's start assembling the pieces of what might be this super lecture that I'll give one day. And she said, well, let's start gathering the clips. And, and, and I'm thinking, yes, this one, we might have to put that on a loop and have that playing for 10 minutes. And, and she's going, well, okay, hang on, let's just, let's just gather the clips and and, and then I had all these quotes from the writer Italo Calvino, his book Invisible Cities, marvellous book. And, uh, and then she said, look, let's just try to edit these together and we'll kind of put you know, a quote at the start on the screen from Calvino and think of a title. And then suddenly I saw, but it was a beautiful feeling, I saw my three-hour super lecture come right down to a, like a three-minute video. But all the pieces were there, right? They were there and they, they linked together. Like suddenly I did see the poetic connection between these different films and, and these different themes that were playing on my mind. They were sort of like haunting my unconscious. And when, I, when she put them together in that way and then we started moving them around and, you know, trying to put different quotes from Calvino on it and stuff like that, you know, the, the, more, the more pure it got, the more sort of minimalistic and, but tighter, more coherent. And, and really, that's what sold me on, on the format of the audiovisual essay. I thought, wow, this is really sometimes a breathtakingly concise form. 
you know, you can have a dream about, oh, I want to write a book about uh, the films of Pedro Almodova, right? But when you actually do it this way, audiovisually, you can see that maybe you can do a 10-minute video that really expresses the core of what you want to say or propose or suggest about that topic or that director or that genre or whatever it is. So for me, it was like this really fascinating form of, of sort of electric condensation where you're dealing with these very energetic fragments because they're fragments of the films themselves and you're sort of trying to keep the electricity of, of the connections between your ideas and these fragments of film. So, so that's sort of, that's kind of where it all starts. To keep you going on that, did writing change for you? Um, I've, I've talked to people who make video essays who now say, yeah, now I have no interest in writing. And it's not a knock on writing or that we shouldn't have writing, but it's, I've written for so long. Now this, th- this is completely changing the way that I think and, and the way that I want to interact with my object of study. Is, is that true for you? Well, it didn't, it didn't disrupt the writer in me uh, because I still write a lot. I mean, I, I, write, I write basically every day of my life as, as, you know, as far as it's possible. I try to work on some piece of writing uh, every day of my life. And, for instance, I have a, a website that's, that's going through the, the archive of my 40 years of writing so far and also adding new things all the time. So, you know, if I see a movie on DVD, I just quickly scratch out a review of it and, and I stick it on my website. So I'm very involved with writing still. But it is absolutely true what you're saying that I, I did feel a, a personal liberation. And I guess it was a more creative or artistic side of myself, which had never quite found the way to, to express. A lot of it because, as I say, of technology, you know, like back in the 1980s, back in the 1990s, before the internet, before laptop computers, really, to think about re-editing films. This was all like a pipe dream, you know. How were you going to get your hands on films in order to, you know, I mean, I know some experimental avant-garde filmmakers literally were, you know, going through rubbish bins outside of film studios and film laboratories to find precious pieces of film and old reels and they'd go off and work with them. But that's not, not the kind of thing I've ever been able to do, right? And, and if I wanted to do a, an audiovisual work of, about Ernst Lubitsch, I didn't know which bin to go to outside of which studio to find an Ernst Lubitsch film, right? And uh, so, but, but then all of that became uh, possible in a, really an unprecedented way, you know, with, with the availability of films kind of digitally. Uh, suddenly a, a huge percentage, not all of course, but a huge percentage of cinema became sort of vi- available and depending on how you do it, freely available. Uh, so, you know, that was amazing because, I mean, I'd like to, to stress in passing because it, it sometimes pops into my head as an incredibly important facet of all this is that, you know, the audiovisual essays that Christina and I make cost nothing. Like we spend nothing. I mean, of course, we had to buy our computers and whatever and, you know, a few, a bit of software and stuff. But, um, but basically the production of every audiovisual essay is zero cents, you know, and, and, and so it really is within the tradition of the DIY, do-it-yourself sort of ultra low budget world of, of, of creativity, like some forms of music have been, like, you know, some forms of art have been. It really is what, you know, they call arte povera, poor art. It comes from, from, from poverty, from precarity, 
And, uh, and, you know, that's another thing that's important for us, that if we watch a film at home and we say, hey, we have a great idea for an audiovisual essay here, we, we can just start doing it instantly. We don't have to raise a budget. We don't have to go on Kickstarter to, you know, to get the money to do it. You know, it's, it's immediately in our grasp to do it. Right. And I think that is also bolstered by the fact that videographic work 99.9% of it is completely self-published on Vimeo and YouTube. And even when it's, you know, on a, even when you're, you're paid to do it, like, like you and Christina are, for example, they're still using those free open access platforms. And I think that that's so essential to kind of the ethos of the whole, the whole thing. When you and Christina collaborate, what is the brainstorming process like? Well, you know, there's no, um, there's no set um, model or, or, or way that we collaborate. It's, it, it's often very different each time. Uh, and really where it often starts is, is from watching a film. Like Christina and I basically watch a film or several episodes of a TV series every day. And, uh, and so we're always watching a lot of stuff. And sometimes we just, you know, we watch a film and one, either of us or both of us at once sometimes, rather spookily, have exactly the same idea, which is that maybe an image in this film we just watched reminded us of another film or another image, or this actor in this film looked really weirdly like the actor in another film 50 years ago, or, or wouldn't it be interesting to take the, the car chase from this movie and juxtapose it with the car chase of something else we saw last week? And so that's, that's often where the ideas come. They just sort of come in a certain way from, from the unconscious or from the, the pre-conscious. Like I, I, I firmly believe in the power of the unconscious. And I've even, you know, taken ideas literally from my dreams sometimes. Like sometimes we'll watch a film. We watched a, a Robert Mitchum film called Thunder Road. And I was pretty tired as I was watching it. And I was, I was, it was like an almost surreal experience. I, I really wasn't following the plot, but I was really aware of the way that Robert Mitchum breathed. You know, he had this very sighing breath that he used all the time. And I thought it was hallucinating, but, but I held this thought. And then I, I went to bed, went to sleep, and I dreamed the film that it was all edited to the rhythm of Robert Mitchum's sighing, right? Crazy. But we used that. That's what we used as the basis for part of our, our audiovisual essay on Robert Mitchum, his acting style in the film Thunder Road. And so, you know, we're, we're open to all these kinds of ideas. Now, to, to get more into the, how the process works from there, one thing that's important that we always say is that we, we do not start with an ironclad script. Personally, it's, it's not our way to pre-script. I know some people do, and some people think it's a good thing to do. It's not a good thing for us. Partly because it's very important. It's very important for Christina, especially because Christina is like the master technician. Like she's the one at the computer doing, you know, pressing six hundred buttons a second, and uh, you know, and she's playing with. Let's put this in front of this. Let's put this behind this. Let's put this sound with this image. Let's try that all the other way around. So she's always looking for these, like what I call those electric connections between fragments and also between image and sound. And, uh, and so she wants to discover those things while 
editing, in montage. You know, she doesn't want to be handed a script by me or anybody else saying, uh, you know, shot one of this scene, cut two, shot three of another scene, and with then another column with a voice saying, shot one can be understood in relation to shot three. Right, that's, that bores the hell out of her, bores the hell out of me too. Um, and so what we do is that either she or I sort of might start by just writing phrases or just sentences or a few paragraphs, but it's not like a written essay in a sense that it's like, this essay is about X and Y, and I will prove that because X, therefore Y, which leads us to Z, right? So it's not, it's not in a logical form of an argument. Uh, it's more like just phrases. There'll be we'll have something about the colour in the film. We'll have something about the gesture in the film. We might have a quotation from somebody. So, so we we have these fragments of uh, of speech when we use a voiceover, which we don't always do. But if we have a voiceover track, and uh, and so this is where, as I was saying before, I'll then go into the other room and I'll start recording these bits of speech. Uh, which I will then, you know, hand on a USB sort of recorded to Christina. She feeds those into, you know, into her editing program and that starts getting moved around as well, you know, as well as everything else that, that we're moving around. And so at every point she'll put something together, we'll look at it together, there will be a discussion that's working well, maybe this part has to go before this, maybe this is too slow, maybe this is too fast. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these things are these sort of intuitive but sort of deeply felt and, and finally deeply considered sort of aesthetic intuitions about what's, what's clicking, you know, what's, what's really working together. And, uh, and we always aim for what we call a, a through line so that there's, you know, there's something that is uniting the different fragments and kind of and, and pulling the work forward, you know, there's some... There's some idea or there's some mood or there's something, a rhythm that is kind of pulling you as a viewer ahead with, with the work. And so that's what we're always trying to find. And so, you know, often we'll make a, a works within a number of days, within a week, and we'll, we'll do part of it, we'll look at it, we'll go to bed and we'll go watch another film, we'll, we'll let it rest, come back to it the next day, consider it, reconsider it, rework it so that's sort of how it goes but in terms of who feeds in what it's a completely open situation it's not like me writing old-fashioned texts and handing them to Christina who says now I turn this into an audiovisual essay no it's it's not that at all uh you know it's us both kind of working towards an audiovisual montage I think that's a good segue to talking about your video essay, Only for Gestures, which if you haven't watched it yet, go to thevideoessay.com and please watch there because we're not going to waste time summarizing the, the video essay or anything like that. I want to I dive right into it. And my first question is this relationship relates to this, you know, the relationship between writing and videographic work because this essay functions sort of as an, a videographic adaptation of Raymond Bellor essay to a degree. And I guess my first question is, do you, do you think of it that way? And talk a little bit about why you decided to make this essay. Mm. Well, the origin of this piece was that in a course that uh, Christina had, had taught herself at, the, at a film school here in Spain, in San Sebastian, the EQZE school, which is a very progressive, very, very creative uh, sort of film theory and practice school. 
And, uh, and in that uh, class that Christina had taught, she used the text uh, from 1984, Analysis in Flames by Raymond Bellou. And, uh, and we don't need to summarise the whole article here, but basically it's Bellou himself sort of looking back on his life as a, you know, one of the main proponents of sort of very rigorous semiotic, you know, formal textual analysis of films. And then at a certain point he felt this liberation that, you know, one could start to let this whole scientific kind of, you know, fantasy go and one could be more creative uh, in, in, in different ways of doing film analysis. And and Raymond was one of the first people who, who, you know, was looking at the way, for instance, people on television were using clips from films and talking over them and how there was a creative relation about talking about cinema by using the images and sounds of cinema. And, and so, and what that piece that he wrote in 1984, Analysis in Flames, which is a very poetic piece, it's, it's based on the famous uh, dramatic paradox that, that some of us know very well, particularly from the days of old-fashioned movie projectors with celluloid in them, that, of course, you watch a film in motion and the film's going through the projector and the illusion of movement is beautiful. But if the film gets caught in the projector, if one frame gets caught, it burns because of the, the heat of the, uh, of the light, of the arc in the projector. And if you've ever been in a cinema where that has happened in the middle of a screening, I mean, you have this horrifying feeling that the entire film is burning as well as the cinema, theatre and everything else and, and, and you as a person. You know, it's like it's, it's really a, a horrifying thing to see. Uh, there's a marvellous uh, novel called something like Scenes from Daily Unreality, which is exactly about to has this surrealistic scene where the film catches and burns and all the spectators go into flames as well, right? The, the spectators burn up in the cinema. And it, wow, you know, not even Tarantino got that far in, in his, his vision of this. And so Balua takes this, this idea that you can analyse film and he says analysis is all about stopping a film and studying the still frames. But it's like he's saying if you do that too long, too much, the film will burn. You know, it's, it's like a poetic, metaphoric way of saying a certain kind of analysis was, was reaching its end. And, uh, and basically, uh, Christina had been using this text in her class and she was thinking about, she was actually thinking first about a great American film, Tulane Blacktop, made by Monty Hellman in the early 70s, which ends with a shot of James Taylor in his car and the, the, the camera is in the car and it's sort of moving. And at a certain point, the image freezes and the, and the frame burns. Like it's, a, it's an animated sort of frame burning and that's the end of the film, right? Incredible, incredible ending in uh, Tulane Blacktop. And so she thought of, well, let's use this clip, you know, from Tulane Blacktop as, you know, and try to mix this in with some, some quote, some fragment of, of Belua's article the sort of poetic centre of, of Belua's article. And, uh, and then through discussing it and thinking about, Belua quotes his friend Serge Danet, who said that the, the freeze frame at the end of The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut was like a historic freeze frame. You know, it, was, it projected a sort of a freeze frame into the mind of the spectator. Um, and and so, so we got that. We got The 400 Blows. And, then, and we had Tulane Blacktop still in play. And then I, I had the idea and I, was, I actually remember being a bit even scared to suggest it because I thought, is this too obvious or who knows? And the idea was is that there is another film in which 
the film is made to burn in the, in the final frames. And that's a film called Le Depart, like the, the, the set-off, the kick-off, by uh, Jerzy Skolomowski. Absolutely incredible, wonderful film. It's all about fast cars and, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, um, and it's all about dreams and obsessions of a young man who wants to drive fast cars and win a, win a car tournament and all this stuff. And that film ends with the actor who is Jean-Pierre Léo. Jean-Pierre Léo, the same guy who was a kid in The 400 Blows, except, of course, now he's, he's eight years older or something, but he's already gone from a, a young adolescent to a, to a young adult in, in Le Depart. And we thought, oh, well, let's, let's, see, let's go have a look at Le Depart again and let's see what the final shot is. And when we saw the final shot of 400 Blows and then we went to the final shot of Le Depart, it's like, that's it. Like, we don't need any more shots. We don't need Tulane Blacktop. We don't need anything else from the history of the cinema. All we need is Jean-Pierre Léo kind of growing older in this superimposition, you know, this crossover between two clips and the film burning, you know, and... Uh, and then the way we used the, the Balua text is that we weren't trying to sort of summarise or adapt in that sense the whole text that he wrote. It was more like I remember Christina uh, tweeted about it. She says it was our piece was inspired by extending on and acting upon a quote from Raymond Balua's analysis in Flames. And so acting upon, it's like an audiovisual essay has to enact something. It has to enact a gesture, right? And this is what Balua was talking about, that after the time of film analysis has passed, of course, it hasn't ever really passed, but he was imagining that if we stopped analysing films, in a way we would, we would only make artistic gestures with films and, uh, and they, they themselves would be films, these artistic gestures. They would be videos, they would be films and so on. And, uh, and so we, we tried to embody that, to enact that in, uh, in this video. We're proud of this one because it only uses the two shots and that's the least we've ever used. Like sometimes we, you know, we're doing hundreds and hundreds of cuts of both images and sound and we've done ones with 12, you know, 15 films of, of a director in one piece. That'll, that'll give you a headache you don't get over quickly. And, um, but this one was like a very pure minimalist thing. And, and, you know, we were interested in this idea of just trying to take a, a very poetic quotation and, and, and to keep its poetry, you know, to keep its, its poetic power and to extend it uh, audiovisually. And I think that minimalist component is so key because the quote itself is, well, just a, a selection of that essay is very dense. And I think that's why the essay functions so beautifully and, and it benefits from multiple viewings. One of the questions I had for you, your video essays, I, I, I think you and Christina make very unique video essays in that they really sit in between kind of the, the, the two camps of video essayists in that you, are, you, are, you have a PhD and, and you have an academic background and you teach, but you're making them for an online pub publication that's not a, a scholarly journal. And so you're sort of, and I imagine that, that your audience is academics and just probably you're the online cinephile com community who, who is consuming this type of work. And so when you're in the creative process for a piece like this and you're narrowing down an essay into just a few sentences, if that, how do you make sure that the meaning is, is not lost? Mm. Well, I don't think we, we do check it in any particularly rational way. I mean, 
part of the part of the way I want to respond to what you're asking me here is that. You know, Christina and I actually do not think of ourselves as academics. I mean, Christina has never been an academic and I've only been an academic as in the sense of someone who works at a university and is paid for it, you know, with a salary. I've only been an academic at very specific and fairly short periods of my life. Uh, I have been much more for most of my life, the majority of my life, a freelance writer and uh, and a film critic. I mean, I think of myself as a film critic above all, and that's also true of Christina. And we think of our audiovisual essays as as acts, as gestures of, of film criticism. Now, what that means in terms of everything you're saying about uh, the audience and the different audiences, I mean, we're not thinking of pitching to different audiences and we certainly have, you know, don't think about pitching to an academic audience, but nor do we think about pitching down to the ordinary viewer. I mean... My, personally, the way I've always thought about this, and this comes back to what we were saying about audio commentaries. So I had a strong sense when I started doing audio commentaries that really my, my, I, there were many possible listeners for a DVD audio commentary, people who already know the film, people who know the director, you know, people who've never seen the film before but were intrigued enough to listen to the, to the commentary track afterwards. But I also had in my head the person that I was when I was young, like a 14, 15-year-old kid who, through whatever means, gets attracted to cinema and, but is hungry for ideas, doesn't, doesn't just want to consume a million films, that's important, but, but also wants just some grasp of some idea, some, something to think about, some, some tool to help him or, him or her through this great jungle of cinema and audio vision and television and computers now and everything else, right? So when I did the, the audio commentaries for DVD, I imagined, you know, being a 15-year-old kid, you know, picking up a DVD from the shop or from their parents' pile or something at home and watching some crazy film, you know, The Blue Angel by Joseph von Sternberg and then thinking... Well, there was something intriguing about that. Maybe I should, I'll listen for five minutes to this guy talking about it. And that's where I come in. And if I can engage that person, as well as all the other people who are listening to it, I feel I've done something good, right? But in many ways, it, it, it's a sort of a, the pitch that Christina and I take in, in our audiovisual essays and also in our writings. I mean, it's very natural to us in that we are film critics you know, happen to also read books and, you know, we're thinking about things all the time and it's natural for us to want to bring in ideas, some theories, some philosophies, you know, some pieces of all these things that we're living. Uh, it's natural for us to want to sort of funnel that. It would be unnatural for us to take it all out, you know, and, oh, we can't have a quote from Bertolt Brecht in this because the average viewer of, you know, whatever movie or fandom or something won't get it, you know. I mean, we've never thought like that in a million years. It's better to put, you know, I, I, when I wrote for a newspaper, as I did in Australia for years, I, I always worked on this thing that, you know, if I put in enough references across the years to Ho Xiao Xian, finally somebody's, some reader, exasperated reader, is going to say, who the hell is Ho Xiao Xian? I better go watch a film by Ho Xiao Xian. You know, it might actually lead them to watch a film by this person they've never heard of and what the hell is this name doing here or in, in this film review of a film not by Hoshio Shen, right? This was always my idea that you, that you drop these, these things in. Uh, one of my personal role models in life is, is a great Australian film critic named John Flouse. 
And the first time I heard John Flowers, I was literally 15 and he was speaking at a science fiction convention, believe it or not. And, and he was talking about how basically when he's, I mean, he's a, he's, he's a very inspiring figure that belongs to no school, no university, no nothing. It's, it's, it's him. And he's a very anarchistic person. And basically he had this, this lesson that he wanted to give us which, on that day, which was that when he speaks at a university, if he's asked to speak at a university about films, he'll throw in some obscenities. He'll swear a bit. He'll shake up the room as he's doing a very high-level analysis, but he'll put it in some real dirty words there and shake up the scene. He says, but then at the same time, he also had a job teaching film in prisons, in prison. So he was teaching a film course in prison. And he said with the prisoners, the opposite thing was the important thing. When you're talking to people in jail, you should mention Hegel, Freud, Marx, Heidegger, and they might ask you, who's that? Who's that? And then you tell them, right? But you don't speak down to them, you know, just as you don't speak up to, to the university. You, you try to speak in a way that you're broadening the context of, of whatever the context is. And with audiovisual essays, I, I feel the context is in fact very wide, you know. I, we don't feel that they're sort of narrow cast at all in terms of what audience they hit. So, you know, in a way we just try to naturally do the thing that, that we respond to and the kind of gesture we come up with and, and then we just kind of throw it out there like, like, you know, a message in a bottle basically on the ocean and different kinds of people will pick that up. Some will ignore it, some will, you know, forget it instantly, but others may be intrigued by it and it's that, that moment of intrigue uh, that aha moment when somebody suddenly some spark goes off in somebody's head, in their heart. It's th- that's that's what you're aiming for always. Absolutely, and I think that's why the two of you operate in such a unique place in the video essay ecosystem. Because as you say, as you don't have a lot of the like I've interviewed a couple of folks who have were who worked at Fandor, for example. They had an mo that they had to produce video essays in a certain way, and so you already mentioned this earlier, but. I think I get that from your work that that you're operating in what interests you and and having a, a a sense of freedom that I think really translates into the work itself. So I think that's a good segue to talking about the video essay that you selected for us to talk about, which is Trespassos by Raphael Guillem. First, pretty basic question is why, why did you select this video essay? Why do you find it so compelling? Uh, I picked this one because uh, I, I like it and because. It was not from the usual uh, American, England, French axis uh, that, uh, you know, so often film culture for so many of us is defined by this kind of America and Europe kind of thing. And and this one is from Mexico. And it's from a magazine, an online magazine, Correspondencias. And uh, Rafael is one of the, the editors, one of the workers and writers on that magazine. So it comes from another part of the world, but a part of the world where there's a lot going on in film culture and including in audiovisual essays, right? Mexico. And also the actual materials of the piece itself are not the usual things that get quoted or used or appropriated in audiovisual essays. There's some things that are familiar. Gus Van Sant's Elephant's in there. Alan Clark's Elephant is in there. But there are also films by directors that I personally haven't yet to see their films. Eduardo Williams, who's a, a, an Argentinian filmmaker, for instance. 
Pablo uh, Chavarria, uh, who's Mexican. Now, these, these are new names to me, right? When we see the clips from their films in Traspasos, in, in a way, they are immediately part of this sort of world's, current world cinema language of, you know, what's called slow cinema, minimalist cinema. And, for instance, David Bordwell uh, has, has made the great point that uh, an important aspect of, of art cinema, going right back to the start of the 60s, Antonioni and stuff, is what David calls the walk and talk technique, right? Long takes of characters walking and, and sometimes talking or not. Sometimes there's music, sometimes there's just ordinary sound. And, and now, of course, in more contemporary cinema, 21st century cinema, this, the characters walking have taken on, you know, epic dimensions, and I thought it was a simple but beautiful poetic idea that Raphael had in this video is to just simply combine a number of walks in a very flowing way so that it all seems like the one walk. But it makes you think about the, the poetics of walking uh, in these contemporary films. And we should explain that the, the, the Spanish language title, Traspasos, means both sort of following the steps, following in the steps of someone, you know, tracing the steps, but it also has that sense as in English, trespass you know, of, uh, of going into a space that's uh, perhaps not yours or you don't own that space or it's an unusual or a foreign space. So there's both walking as following as tracing a path and there's walking as trespass. And, and watching the way Raphael edited those clips together, I feel that you get that intuitively. You get it kind of, as it were, in your body physically. You get this sense of what all of this walking in contemporary cinema is all about in terms of the people who are doing it, the class of the people who are doing it, the kinds of worlds they're walking between, you know, and, uh, and by sort of covering so many countries, so many paths, the literal different kinds of paths, and making it all like one walk, you know, so we have the, the almost uh, comic uh, device of the, you know, the number of metres kind of written on the screen as, as if it is literally one walk that, that is happening. But in fact, of course, it's combined of many walks. So I thought there was, you know, a, a poetic concentration, a poetic distillation of something that is incredibly important in, in contemporary cinema here. The, the, the poetics of the essay, there's an immersive quality to it that I think is really compelling. I feel like there are kind of two schools of video essays. One is where it's really trying to, to break the film and analyze it. And in that sense, you don't really get sucked into the essay. I mean, it's still compelling and captivated by. And there's this one where it's 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 borrowing film style, film language, making you really just think. And, 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 and I think the meters aspect really teaches you how to think about the essay as you're watching it. As the first ones were coming up, I was kind of like, okay, are they, is he counting the meters like in each individual shot? And then you realize like, oh, wait, we're counting the the, the collective number of meters, which is sort of a, a great revelation that may have been obvious to most people, but it wasn't to me originally. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really great. And I, I'm, you, you mentioned something about the, the video essay using films by directors who are not Hitchcock or Paul Thomas Anderson or, or, or the directors that, that seem to dominate the video essay world. And I'm wondering, as a, as a film critic yourself, Part of the point of being a film critic is to be on the lookout for for new films and to write about them in newspapers and generate interest. Do you think that's one of the unique advantages of videographic criticism is this ability to broaden the conversation? And is that something that you think about in your own work? I mean, it's definitely something that it's one factor that, that when we're, you know, tossing up ideas, uh, Christina and I, you know, are often 
I mean, it's always based on our own viewing, but our own viewing is is, is also based on, you know, what, what haven't we seen yet or which director do we need to watch or is there some decade in some country that we, we've, we, we know nothing about? And, and so we have that sort of exploratory sense of viewing and that sort of naturally leads to our, our topics. Um, but, you know, it, it is a great thing to be able to... For instance, we've done a well, we've done several works now. Not not all of them are, are available yet in public, but we've done several works on uh, Marco Bellocchio, the the Italian filmmaker, who's you know quite well known. I mean, he's not an he's not an unknown by any means. But you know, we showed uh, our, our our longest work on Bellocchio at a conference uh, in Australia. And almost everyone in the audience said to us, wow, you know, I'd heard of that guy and I saw the one film that's on Criterion, Fists in the Pocket by Bellocchio, but God, I didn't know he'd made 30 other movies and still making movies and uh, and I got to see them all. You know, so like we actually, you know, incited that desire to, to, to watch a filmmaker's work. And that's important for us because, you know, of course you also want people to go back and look at Hitchcock, look at, you know, whatever it might be, Polanski, Sternberg, you know, um, Chantal Ackerman, you know, all uh, Agnes Varda. You, you want people to, to go back through the canon and find new ways of sort of understanding it and bringing it alive and bringing it into the present. But you also do want to kind of broaden that that conversation. I mean, we're not Christina and I are not opposed to commercial cinema or genre cinema by any means. You know, we're we're big fans of a lot of popular genres, but but we do try to steer away from yeah some of these kind of over, overworked examples unless uh, unless we, we have a really unusual angle uh, on something. You know, so David Lynch, we've we've done a, a number of pieces on him because you know we're, we're quite obsessed with David Lynch, and and so is plenty of other people in the world and in the audiovisual essay world. We're, we're fully aware of that, but but there we we felt we had like a particular angle that we wanted to bring out with David Lynch, so we uh, we went for that. But yeah, the the more that these things expand in terms of the reference to national cinemas, to you know all kinds of different filmmakers, women filmmakers as well as men filmmakers, of course. You you know, all of all of that diversity that, that, that people now talk about is important, and um, and so yeah, we, we we try to do our own uh, little little contribution to that. And and I'm I'm speaking primarily for myself, but but you alluded to this earlier as as someone who is who is just overflowed with you know Hollywood and European cinema primarily um, in a way that I I really want to want to get out of. There's something very effective about this piece in that it's using films that I'm not familiar with. Um, and I'm speaking only for me, but I, I would imagine you mentioned this and I, I imagine a lot of people would not be familiar with at least half of half of the films. And I, I and I wonder if I wonder if that was um intentional because I think it, it brings on another meaning what to the to what this video essay is trying to get you to think about by the fact that it's not using long walking shots from Films that we would know because we don't have we're not bringing our own experience or any context to it, which I think is, which I think is kind of essential to, to the video essay in a way. I, I'm I'm just trying to think if there a, of like a famous walking shot that if it was placed in the middle of it, it would almost kind of disrupt the flow of the video essay. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you agree with that or if that's just literally my own experience. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I think if we had you know a Bellata clip in the middle. That would have this effect that you're talking about. It would be like, oh right, yeah, we're back to the canonical master of the long walking shot, uh, old Bellatar. And um, 
you know, that, that would have wrecked it for me. You know, it's, it's interesting that the, the most mainstream this piece gets is, is, um, is Gus Van Sant. You know, is elephant, and that that works because it's sort of its content of those shots. The the school kids and so on seems to sort of chime in with other figures that we see from other films. But I I, I totally agree with you that this. I mean, this is a piece that, in its own sort of simple and powerful way, is about giving you an image of world cinema, and you know, and giving you some you know. Asian cinema content, some Mexican cinema content, you know, Argentinian cinema, you know, these things that we're not always including in the globe of, of world cinema. And so without having to, you know, wrap you over the knuckles with that, the piece is saying, you know, open your mind, open your eyes, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different landscapes, a lot of different life and social experiences that can be sort of drawn into this. And I think that's what makes the essay so effective is that it doesn't apologize for that difference. If you catch my drift, like it's very clear that they're different films. It's not trying to, it's not trying to trick you in any way. The, the aesthetic of each is the lighting of each, the, they're all different, but yet the, the editing itself is so effective primarily through, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, like match cut type transitions, but, but, but that is, it, it, it really feels like one cohesive piece. And it's again this kind of minimalist idea that it is just so effective in its own way, but is also very deceptively simple, right? Like I don't, it, there, there's a, there's a lot of thought and preparation and intentionality in that piece, but it seems so effortless. I completely agree with you there, Will, and and in fact, I think you you've shown me something there about the reason Christina and I would would like a, a video like this is because we also aim for that thing where you know we like to create a flow between fragments, but we never try to sort of you know blend them into the one thing where you can't tell the difference anymore, you know, unless there's some point to that. But generally, we like it in in the the language of film theory, we like there to be an element of heterogeneity. In other words, difference between clips and a clear difference. So we're not trying to erase the differences between one film and another, one time period and another, one genre and another. We're, we're, we're putting the things together, but we, we also want to keep the, you know, the, the differences between them in play. And this is what Christina and I have often spoken about, is that we try to find a sort of a thread or a channel that unites things. And that means, as it were, turning up the volume or down the volume in different ways on different aspects of each clip, but also to, to respect the, the heterogeneity uh, of the materials. And that, that's, that's an exciting thing for me personally. I, I, I enjoy heterogeneity in cinema. I enjoy this sort of excessive difference, you know. And, um, but if you can also, as Raphael Guillaume has done, if you can also make that flow and, and create a line that joins those fragments, you know, that's, that is a beautiful gesture in itself. Adrian, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. Well, it's been fun. 